Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is going to be part two of our Toxidrome series. We scratched the surface with the Toxidrome basics in part one, and we're going to move beyond the Toxidrome here in part two. And we're, again, lucky enough to have uh, our go-to toxicologist, uh, Dr. Jerry Snow, join us today. And we're uh, he's remote from Phoenix, so please forgive any uh, any robotic sounds that you may hear. And if you've listened to part one, this, we're going to pick up with really what I hope are some sort of outside the Toxidrome uh, discussion points. You know, we, we talk sort of textbook, you know, skin, heart rate, pupils, cholinergics, anticholinergics, sort of the textbook things. But I wanted to move a little more into some current events, some one-offs that I feel like are important to remember really sort of some uh, toxic exposures that don't fit the classic toxidrome teaching. So let's let's start with some of those, Jerry, and do an old-school hypertensive, clonidine. Uh, this one can be confusing and can be potentially deadly in kids. Tell us why this one can confuse us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, clonidine's been around for a very, very long time, and it's, 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 it's classified along with several other drugs that I'd like to mention um, and they are what we call centrally acting alpha-2 agonists. Um, and we'll kind of explain a little bit more about what that is. But other drugs to kind of keep in mind along with clonidine that look very, very similar in exposure, for example, would be methyl dopa, which is also used as an antihypertensive, especially like in pregnancy. Tizanidine, or you may be familiar with it, more familiar with the brand name of Xanaflex, which you'll see people that are on that for muscle relaxation or you know low back pain. So it's it's a commonly prescribed um, medication as well for that. And another medication used to treat actually ADHD, which is um, guanfacine, um, which is also very widespread. And I've seen a number of those exposures. So all these um, medications actually stimulate, as I said, these centrally located alpha-2 receptor. And what happens when that's stimulated, you see a decrease in the sympathetic nervous system activity. You see a decreasing sympathetic outflow. You're actually decreasing the amount of norepinephrine as a as a neurotransmitter that's being released. So you can imagine when you have decreased amount of that excitatory neurotransmitter is you get CNS depression, you get bradycardia, and you get hypotension. So clonidine is used mostly for its ability to lower blood pressure um, through hypotension. Now, um, clonidine has been classically listed, um, you know, counted as a one pill can kill, because um, definitely, you know, a very small dose of clonidine can cause a kid definitely to get really CNS depressed, develop some bradycardia and some slight hypotension. Most of these kids, or even in an adult large ingestion, tend to do pretty well. Um, you know, some of them just get fluids. Most people, if you stimulate them, they will breathe. They look very much like an opioid, though. They'll have the small pupils, CNS depression, maybe a little bit of respiratory depression, but typically will have that bradycardia and hypotension. They just seem to respond a little bit better just with um, just with supportive care alone. And, and most of these outcomes will actually be good. If you were confused and you gave that patient uh, naloxone, Jerry, what would you see? There, there'd be no harm. I mean, there's been some um, studies that have actually looked at, since I think they look so clinically similar, p- some people have av- advocated that really high dose naloxone potentially 
um, could reverse the toxicity from central, centrally acting alpha-2 agonists. I really haven't seen that in my practice. I know some providers do advocate, you know, trying that. There would be no harm to the patient unless they were chronically on opioids and then you precipitated withdrawal. But say, take me for instance, you could give me 50 milligrams of naloxone and nothing would happen. You know, I'm not chronically on opioids, so I would not become ill. So if a patient ever confused an alpha-2 agonist for an opioid and administered naloxone, there'd be no harm involved. And again, just to run run through some of those, you, you know, clonidine's probably the one that's most classically tested. It's still used mm-hmm. out there as probably third or fourth line antihypertensive, but I see a lot more of the guanfacine uh, in kids uh, for ADHD Absolutely. these days. So that mm-hmm. definitely may be another spot with the medication for for uh, listeners out there that you may not be as familiar with, but just sort of lump guanfacine in with clonidine, respiratory depression, uh, small pupils, uh, hypotension. Uh, worth thinking about, and you know, if you're a three-year-old or a four-year-old, it doesn't take um, too many doses be above normal uh, to go from therapeutic to toxic in some of these medications. I know my own personal uh, experience with guanfacine has been more in parents that have misdosed their children and been concerned and discussing that with poison control a couple times has really brought to light that it doesn't take much above normal sometimes to cause problems in these kids yeah many of the patients that i've cared for it's been a younger sibling being exposed to an older sibling's medication and a lot of those kids do get fairly symptomatic and warrant you know 23 hour observation so that's that's our uh, alpha 2 agonist let's Let's hit some let's hit some current events here. If anybody's watched the news over the past couple weeks, couple months, uh, we've seen we've seen vaping in the news, and vaping's becoming more and more popular. Um, and we'll kind of hit two parts here to this question: What are some of the signs and symptoms that a child might exhibit, uh, Jerry, if he or she's uh, gotten into mom or dad's vape juice? And then we can move on to. Uh, uh, pulmonary manifestations of vaping as well. Absolutely. So it's interesting because if you look at some of the more recent data, you know, nicotine toxicity is not something new. I mean, it's, it's been happening for, for many, many decades, but just from 2012 to 2013 alone, the number of reports of nicotine toxicity more than tripled. And a lot of this is because vaping or the e-cigarette has brought these highly concentrated nicotine products to market. And there have been absolutely been deaths reported um, from pediatric exposures um, to these highly concentrated um, liquid nicotines. I mean, keep in mind, it only takes about a milligram per kilo to actually cause significant toxicity. And when you look at these products, for example, you take... You can take five mLs of a 1.8% nicotine, so a less than a 2% nicotine solution, that would have 18 milligrams per mL just in that, in the five mLs alone. And that's enough that could be lethal in an adult. So we're talking very, very small quantities of this could, 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 could kill a child. Um, initially, what one might see in kind of a lower dose not getting such a high toxic exposure, you'd expect to see stimulant effects. So maybe an increase in heart rate, increase in blood pressure. And people that actually ingest this, whether it's a child or an adult, or an adult vomiting is gonna be kind of the rule, expected. It's extremely common. People that ingest nicotine are probably gonna be throwing up. They almost may have diarrhea. They almost be experiencing abdominal pain or cramping. Now, as the severity of the exposure would increase, 
they may have more broader systems involved as well, such as dizziness, sweating, they may be restless, they may look like they're having respiratory distress or increased work of breathing. You can see pretty excessive drooling as well. So these can, honestly, these can look a lot like even the cholinergic toxidrome um, in many ways. But as the, these features go on, what you start to see after these stimulating effects, you start developing muscular weakness, CNS depression, even to the point of coma. You can also see seizures and eventually in severe toxicity, you can even see respiratory failure um, in the more severe cases. So if, from an EMS standpoint, we're going to want to go back to our ABCs, uh, you know, oxygenate, bag valve mask, uh, you know, advanced airway management, if that's indicated or, or part of your system, uh, you know, again, notice your surroundings, um, you know, if it's a, if it's a pediatric patient, especially, you know, and they've been into something and they don't know what, obviously, you know, we're really good in the, in the pre-hospital setting about grabbing all that we can grab and bottles and paraphernalia and, and the like to, to try and help us sort through this. So that's from an ingestion standpoint, nicotine toxicity. What about the vaping deaths that we've had? That's obviously not an ingestion. That's going to be from inhalation. Tell our listeners what, what you know is from the toxicology side about the cause here, because it seems like it's been fairly elusive. Yeah, it continues to be. So this is something that's kind of been on, I think, a lot of people's radar um, over the last many, many uh, weeks, to, uh, last few months. And um, when you look at this, what they're calling this vaping associated pulmonary illness, we're talking, you know, we're up in the hundreds of cases now of this acute lung injury that it looks like it's associated actually with vaping and spread across many dozen states now as well. And these are patients that are coming in with you know, shortness of breath, GI symptoms as well oftentimes being febrile. Um, like I said, they'll come in with increased work of breathing, some of them presenting with hypoxia as well on room air. Not everybody has an abnormal chest X-ray, but there have been many patients that demonstrate kind of a bilateral lung infiltrates on their X-ray as well. And one of the things that they've seen that a lot of these patients have in common is actually um, using vaping. And there definitely have been deaths reported. Now, you know, I know along with pulmonology and pathology, you know, medical toxicology has been following along and the CDC and local and state health departments are trying to track this down. Nobody knows with certainty what the exact pathophysiology here or what if any specific chemical within certain products may be causing this. So, you know, people are trying to gather up these products that have been had kind of had the finger pointed at them and trying to determine what, you know, is it a solvent? Is it, you know, some other aerosolized oil or chemical within these products? But nobody's actually been able to clearly demonstrate exactly what it is um, in these products that seems to be causing this um, pulmonary illness. And I'll just insert here for the uh, lag time from production to release. Uh, if we happen to figure that out here in the next four to six weeks before this one hits the air after Jerry and I are talking today. I'll be sure to uh, insert uh, and edit That's because we, we may figure it out. But as of today, end of uh, September, we don't we don't know yet. Moving into some things that we've we've discussed on other podcasts, you and I at length, Jerry's the opiate crisis and and sort of the fentanyl hysteria and sort of where that came from and how we can approach that uh, with a sort of a level head. Uh, there are some opiate-related medications that when we see in uh, overdose uh, toxicity situations that really can can scare the toxicologists. Tell us why we should be afraid of the methadone overdose. 
Sure. So methadone, like all other opioids, it's it's a mu receptor agonist, and it does cause the classic opioid toxidrome that you've come to know, which is CNS and respiratory depression with meiosis. However, methadone has a really long half-life, and I think another thing that separates it from you know more of the traditional opioids that people think about is QTC prolongation, which can actually even lead to torsades. So even as patients are started on methadone as a maintenance therapy. Those people oftentimes get a screening EKG to make sure they don't already have a prolonged QT before starting methadone because as that methadone is titrated up, we know that as people get over, say, like 100 milligrams a day, they're really at more increased risk of complications from like a um, prolonged QTC. Now, I would like to point out not just vilify methadone because it's really been shown to be efficacious in, you know, retaining individuals in treatment programs, decreasing illicit opioid use, and reducing all cause and overdose mortality in these opioid use patients. So it definitely has some drawbacks. It's not the perfect medication, but it definitely has had a positive impact in some patients. Yeah, I definitely don't want to pile on and want to discuss it more from the uh, overdose standpoint as opposed to general uh, overall use. Really, the message I would want to give to our MCHD medics and the listeners out there is if you're in a situation where you're concerned for methadone toxicity, that we're going to be doing our ABCs, our you know BVM, airway management, oxygenation, naloxone, like we talked about in in uh, you know Toxidrome Basics podcast. But we also want to make sure we have our magnesium handy as these patients, like Jerry said, are, are prone to prolonged QTC and, and torsades. So just, just sort of a, if you're thinking about common everyday opiate toxicity, you're not going to be thinking about torsades. If you're in a methadone situation, it needs to move, move at least to your midbrain, if not your forebrain. So moving on from methadone's relationship to the opiate crisis, uh, there's another uh, overdose uh, situation that our listeners may or may not be familiar with. I know I wasn't until I've listened to a few podcasts and read on this one recently over the past year or two, and that's Imodium. I know Imodium, unfortunately, from my own personal diarrheal illnesses in the past, but Imodium ingestion toxicity is on the rise. Explain to the listeners why and, and why it can be a huge problem, Jerry. So abs- absolutely. So Imodium is simply really just a brand name from Lopiramide which is an over-the-counter anti-diarrhea medication that you already mentioned. And this is typically taken into doses in adults of either four up to about 16 milligrams a day. So keep that in mind. A normal dose is the higher end is 16 milligrams a day. So therapeutic doses of pyramide, it acts on peripheral mu opioid receptors. So this is how it helps with diarrhea, slowing the gut down. But it doesn't really cross the blood-brain barrier in significant amounts and causing any kind of central opioid effects. However, if a patient takes enough of it, like boxes, like 100, 200, 400 milligrams daily, all of these which have been reported in the medical literature, it can enter the brain and it will affect those central opioid um, receptors. And of course, this can cause CNS and respiratory depression along with meiosis. So what some folks kind of figured out some years back is they can use it to actually prevent or self-treat opioid withdrawal. So people were using massive amounts of this. Well, unfortunately, these high doses, it will alleviate opioid withdrawal, but it can also lead to ventricular dysrhythmias. And there's been multiple cases in the literature reported of death 
from these ventricular dysrhythmias. And this probably has to do with loperamide's effects on potassium efflux blockade, as well as sodium channel blockade. So this is widely reported in the medical literature, not a good idea, and patients should really not be using loperamide as an um, to alleviate opioid withdrawal in these doses like this. And if you saw one of these patients in a, in a pre-hospital setting that was in, you know, a ventricular arrhythmia type situation, would you go for sodium bicarbonate first? Yeah, I mean, if I had a, if I had an EKG and I knew what exactly those intervals were, whether it was widening of the QRS or prolonging of the QTC. So if it looked like it was mainly the QTC, I'd reach for my magnesium. If it is, you know, QRS widening, then I'm going to go with sodium bicarbonate. Perfect. Perfect. And that's one, again, I've used my fair share of Imodium in the past, never at those high doses, but I think something worth being aware of. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, you surely wouldn't recognize it. Uh, let's do one more on the opiate spectrum, Jerry. Tell us about Kratom and sort of the normal-ish use of it and what you might see in a toxicity situation. Sure, absolutely. So so Kratom is actually um, Mitragonus speciosum. It's a plant native to Southeast Asia. Um, and it's been used there for a long time. You know, at low doses, it has a stimulant effect and it has analgesic properties at, at higher doses. So it's been used to, you know, reduce or abstain from non-prescription opioid or heroin use. Um, folks have used it to manage chronic pain. And it's also been used to uh, mitigate or help with opioid withdrawal. And this is possible because Kratom actually is an opioid agonist. It actually has, there's like 25 different alkaloids present. So there's many things that are actually in Kratom. Two of the major you know, pharmaceutically active components of kratom are mitragynine, which has about the, has about a f- one fourth the potency of morphine, but seven hydroxymetragynine has about ten times the potency of morphine, but is in much smaller quantities. So people will chew fresh leaves, or they can take dried leaves and ingest them, or they can even take the dried leaves and first for instance, brew a tea. In low doses, as I mentioned, this has stimulant effects predominantly. So enhances alertness, productivity. This kind of makes people feel a little bit more energetic and outgoing. Um, you may use like one to five grams for that. But as you get into these higher doses, say five, you know, 10, 15 grams of this product, you'll start having um, those opioid effects. And this can involve CNS and respiratory depression along with um, small pupils. And for the most part, this is gonna be good supportive care, BVM, as you, you know, as you mentioned. Um, not, naloxone has not been widely studied, but there are case reports in the medical literature where naloxone has successfully reversed toxicity from kratom. So I think I would treat this like I would any other opioid, whether you knew whether it was kratom or not, and go from there. So let's wrap it up. Uh, we're gonna, little little curveball here. We're going to make a variation on a toxicity we know well and we already discussed in part one of the Tox, Toxidrome podcast, and that is you arrive, you find an agitated, hypertensive, tachycardic, sweaty patient. So everything's turned up and the patient's sweaty. So not a tricky one. We've got a sympathomimetic toxicity overdose situation. And you notice a patchy purple rash on the patient's face or their ear. What's up with this patient? Yeah, well, this sounds like the old Avambasol can contaminated cocaine trick. So, you know, levambasol is actually a veterinary pharmaceutical. It's used to primarily treat worm in, um, infestation in, um, in animals. But interestingly enough, it's been used experimentally and historically to treat various autoimmune disorders as well as even cancers in humans. But due to some of these toxicities that I mentioned, that's kind of fallen out of favor. Now, the DEA first uh, detected levambasol within the cocaine supply in the early 2000s, and they use it as a cutting agent. Well, it's white, it's cheap, 
It comes in powder form. They have easy access to it. And it's thought to even kind of enhance the euphoric effects of uh, cocaine. So you can see why they would you know, use it as a cutting agent because it, it fits a lot of the parameters of what you'd be looking for. The other considerations when it comes to levamisole, other than this vasculitis, that's what's causing the, the rash that you mentioned. It's actually a, a vasculitis from an immune response. You can see found agranulocytosis or neutropenia, and these patients can be at very high risk of really serious infection. So, you know, if you see a unexplained, really low white count, you see this purple rash, you know, it, it definitely tips you off. This patient could actually be um, a cocaine user and they, the best thing they can do for themselves is stop using cocaine because the vast majority of cocaine in the United States actually has levamisole in it now. And you can also see leukoencephalopathy related to chronic exposure from it as well. From an EMS standpoint, obviously, you know, we're not treating levamisole any differently than we would the sympathomimetic right. uh, regular benzos, fluids, supportive care for our sympathomimetic patients. But from an observation standpoint, you know, if, if a paramedic points that out to me as they deliver the patient in the emergency department, I'm going to be much quicker on the agranulocytosis, the, you know, looking at my CBC closer, thinking about potential opportunistic infections and things like that a lot more quickly. So like anything else in emergency care, I, me personally, as an emergency provider relies, you know, very heavily on my pre-hospital provider's ability to, to see and hear and uh, examine things that I often miss. So this is one of those where, yeah, you may say, I, why do I need to know about levamisol? I'm never going to, you know, take care of it as a as a paramedic. But if you notice the purple ear or the purple face in the in the cocaine toxic patient, uh, that can go a long way to helping me out once the patient arrives at the ED. Yeah, absolutely. And if you know if they notice that, even if it's not the reason the patient initially, you know, called nine one one for it, maybe totally unrelated, but. If they discover that that patient's using cocaine and they have this vasculitis and they know that they're at risk for these other complications, like you said, they could speak to the emergency provider and it may make a big difference in that patient's outcome. And that's a great spot for us to wrap up, Jerry. Again, thanks for joining us for uh, part two, Beyond the Toxidrome. Hopefully listeners out there compare Toxidrome basics in part one and a little current events, a little Beyond the Toxidrome information in part two and really have a better understanding and better framework for, for approaching, you know, the, the general toxicologic undifferentiated emergency patient. And this really fits to a majority of the patients that we see every day. Thanks again, Jerry, for joining us. If you have questions or concerns, email us at the podcast email podcast at mchd-tx.org. Leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Just, become more visible and, and more available. As always, if you have uh, questions or concerns, send them our way. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.